Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. All right, all right. What's up, everybody? How we doing? Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you guys are having a good week. Um, look, my name is Cole. I am the uh, minister to college students. This is how I start every single Oxano. I, I say my name and what I do. But hey, look, I am super grateful that you guys chose to be here with us this Tuesday. Uh, tonight, we are in the third track of our exploration of Isaiah's servant songs. And so if you've been with us through the latter half of the semester, you know that we have been journeying together through these four pieces of poetry these four songs that Isaiah has included in the second portion of his uh, major work of historical narrative, right? This major work of God's word to his people that is exploring this mysterious figure of Israel's hope, the servant, God's servant, right? And so before, right, every single week so far, we have sort of suspended where we're going. So before we, we jump toward who we know that to be, we are trying to take this text for what it is and, and see what we can glean from it as God's word to us. And so tonight we are in the third iteration of these servant songs. And so we are in Isaiah 50, uh, verses 4 through 11. So uh, glad you guys are here. Uh, look, a little bit about me. So I am not really like a movie guy. I know. I know. Sorry. I'm, I'm trying. I really am trying. See, I just, there's something about like the theater, right? Like the seats are always a little sticky and like my elbow always hits the seat warmer and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it is very hot. So anyway, I don't really love the theater, but this summer I went uh, and I saw like, you know, the, the double feature, right, that everybody saw, right? So I went and I saw um, Oppenheimer, right? You guys, I don't know if you saw it. Maybe you, maybe you saw it. Maybe you were uh, you heard the nuke go off while you're watching Barbie next door, right? Everyone at least heard about the nuke. And so uh, I really liked the movie. So spoiler, I guess. It's about a nuke. Sorry, I don't know if you guys didn't know that. It's, it's important. Um, but the movie is based off of a novel, a biography about this dude's life called American Prometheus. American Prometheus. And I really love that title. And the reason I love it is because it really captures the essence of what that movie's about, right? So if you guys remember, Prometheus is this, this Greek myth, right? And he is the beginning in some ways of the Greek understanding of humanity. So this guy, Prometheus, he goes to the mounts of the gods and he steals fire, steals fire. I don't know how, it, like Olympic runner with a torch and running down. I don't know how he does it, but he takes it and he gives it to mankind. And from there, mankind is now no longer bound. They're no longer servants. They are no longer slaves to the natural elements, right? Fire is this engine of human civilization. And so Prometheus is this revered figure in Greek mythology because he is the one who has unleashed, who has released humans from being subservient to the gods in a way where they are powerless before them. See, before, right, if, you, if it was nighttime like this, you know, we would have to go to sleep, but now we have lights and fire and power, and we can stay up, right? Before, if it was cold, you would probably die, <laughs> and with fire, 
you don't have to die anymore, right? So they are freed from the power of nature, but a shift happens with the people's relationship to the gods. See, with this newfound power, with this newfound freedom, these gods, this pantheon of powers that you had to offer up praises to in order to receive good from, right? They were the gateway to the good life in some ways. But what Prometheus does is he switches them from being the gateway to the good life to hindrance of human progress. They go from the gateway of the good life to hindrance of human progress. And so what Zeus does, right, big, bad, powerful boss, you know, boss man, God, he's not happy. And he chains Prometheus to a rock and he tortures him <laughs> for eternity. Sorry, I know that's funny. But he tortures him for eternity. It's payback for leveling the playing ground between God and man. So this, this picture of Zeus is one of a vindictive God who is bent on getting retribution against Prometheus because he has challenged and threatened his own power and his own prestige for himself and the rest of the pantheon of the gods. So this, believe it or not, is similar to the setting of what we're going to find in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 51 through 3 is this stage of decreation. It's this stage of chaos and destruction and debt and divorce and all these bad things that are about splitting things in two. And it's a recap of Israel's story in our own. And so just like Prometheus and just like Israel, we so often find ourselves in a world that's spinning in disarray. We so often find ourselves in a world that is blackened, where the... the the curtain has closed and all there is is black and we have no idea where to go or what to do with ourselves. And at this point, we have a choice. You can follow the torch, the fire of another. You can give yourself over to the powers that be. You can bow before these so-called gods, right? You can check all the boxes, hit all the right lines. You can do all the right things, but if this is the path you take, if this is the choice you make, if you follow someone else's torch, if you follow the traditions, if you just follow in line with what everybody tells you to do, ultimately we all know that this will breed discontentment. Like, man, why did I I just go along with what that person was telling me to do? This will breed shame, You'll never be able to quite live up to the expectations that others have for you. This will ultimately bring oppression. You won't be able to free yourself from this bondage of other people's expectations of you. So that's choice A. Choice B is you can light your own torch. You can say, I'm not listening to nobody, nothing. I'm doing my own thing. I'm making my own way. I'm taking my own fire, and I'm carrying it through this darkness. You can liberate yourself from that which came before. You can write your own story. You can blaze your own trail. You can bow to yourself, and you can follow your desires to their fullest end. But in the end, ultimately, all that reaps is a deeper sense of dread, deeper sense of burden, a deeper sense of fear. And so I think the place that Isaiah is beginning us in, in this chapter right here, is this place of darkness. And he's 
posing this simple question to us is, why are you so afraid of the dark? Why are you so afraid of the dark? Why are you afraid to be alone? And he suspends this question throughout the rest of our chapter. So that's where we're starting off, right? And all of this, it stems from a simple misbelief. It stems from a lie. We've talked a lot about lies through this series. We've talked about how Israel has complained against God and his character. They've misrepresented him to themselves. And, and we so often, if we're honest, we think of God like Zeus. We think God is this vindictive power who is, who is out to get us. We think he is the hindrance to our progress. We think he's the kill to our buzz. We think he's the thing that stands in the way of us having a good time. We think God is like Zeus, and we mimic the words of Israel in Isaiah 49, 14. It's a similar complaint we've heard before in this series, but it goes like this. Israel says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. But in the midst of the backdrop of black, in the midst of the curtain that has closed, Isaiah's servant speaks again. And that is where we find ourselves in our text. Isaiah's servant speaks again. See, God has given his servant to give us wisdom. And this wisdom reveals the truth of his character and it empowers us to walk in the light of God's Mercy. I'm going to say that again. God has given us his servant to give us wisdom, and this wisdom reveals the truth of his character and empowers us to walk in the light of his mercy. And so that's where we're going to begin tonight. In verses 4 through 9, this is the servant's soliloquy of sorts, right? So imagine a stage, a play, right? The servant comes up, act two, right? The curtain's still black and a light shines. It's the voice of the servant, and this is what he has to say. Look with me in verse four. He says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. So in Isaiah's servant's soliloquy, let's say that three times fast, right? In Isaiah's servant's, <laughs> I just messed myself up, soliloquy, he goes through three major components about God's wisdom. The first being his mission is to bring wisdom. And we see that here in the first two verses, right? Isaiah's uh, servant has been gifted wisdom from God for what purpose? To teach others as those who are taught. God's servant has been given wisdom from God to teach and to sustain the weary. And so before we, we move too, too much past this point, right? It seems like a simple Point, but th this word sustain is actually in Hebrew the word awaken, right? And so you can see this wordplay that's happening between verses four and five, right? Isaiah's servant has been given the tongue of those who are taught so that he can awaken the one who is weary. He's been awakened to God's own word, and now he is like a channel that is bringing that toward others, right? He is bringing others into the light 
of God's mercy. He's bringing others into the light of God's mourning. That is his task. That is his mission. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, great, like, well, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? See, God's word has a lot to say about what wisdom is. You have a ton of ink spilled. You have pages on pages on pages written about what wisdom is. But if I could offer to it, offer it to us simply this evening, it's simply how to live in the world of God's design. Wisdom is how to live in the world of God's design. It's going with the grain of the universe. It's so you don't rub up against these things that are detrimental to us in the long run. Wisdom is going along with the grain of God's world. It's the light by which you walk. It's the, the lamp to your feet. It's the light to your path. And so who are the ones who are weary? And I think if you guys have been following along, it's, it's pretty simple, right? It's, it's us, one, but it, contextually, it's also Israel. It's these people who have been walking by other lights. It's these people who have been trying to make their life come out right in their own strength, and their own power, and their own knowledge, and their own understanding. It is Israel who needs sustaining. And so God's servant is sent so that he might be like the manna for them. He might be like the quail for them. He might be like the water that proceeds from the rock and sustains his people in a dry, wandering place. He is the one who sustains them, and he sustains them through wisdom. So we have, in the first two verses, the, the mission that is to give wisdom. And the second uh, component of this, the second piece of this, is there, there is actually a surprise to the substance, to the content, to the shape of what this servant's wisdom looks like. So read with me in verse 6. There the servant says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The New Testament scholar, uh, a guy by the name of Brevard Childs, I, he, he wrote a commentary on Isaiah. It's very big and very long, and he uses a lot of big words, so I wouldn't recommend it. But he says this. He says, what the servant learned was not information. The source, the substance of the servant's wisdom was not uh, a degree. It wasn't a PhD. It wasn't a class that he took, but it was an experience. The source of the substance or the servant's wisdom was not learned information, but it was to accept the experience of suffering and shame. What the servant learned was not information, but to accept the experience of suffering and shame. And this is the surprise. Because if we're honest, this is like a 180-degree flip from what we might understand and, and think of as wisdom. See, see, all of our wisdom, all of our knowledge, all of the things that we uh, strive to live by in our life, right? It's, if we're honest, it's, it's this experience to avoid disgrace and shame. We order and structure and 
live our lives in such a way as to avoid these two experiences, right? You guys are in school. Some of you guys are working. You study hard. You work hard at your job. You don't take a four-hour lunch. Maybe you do. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you, you labor in the library, right? For what purpose? It's also that you don't see a red F back on your paper. And you, like, hide it, you know, really quickly so you're, you know, the guy sitting next to you doesn't see it, right? And you try to, I don't know, you can screenshot your GPA so your parents don't see it. Like, see, look, it's a 4.0. Like, why can't I click on it? So you, you try to hide this experience of shame and disgrace before your peers and before others. We try to avoid these two experiences, and that is the substance and the basis for our wisdom. See, no one wants to be humiliated. No one wants to experience disgrace or shame, but yet we all step in it like all the time. You, I'm sure, have experienced, right, you have labored over a decision. You're thinking like this has got to be the best thing for me to do. This has got to be the right path. And you, you proceed with that ultimately just to find out that, man, maybe you left someone out to dry. Or that decision that you thought was going to bring life actually kind of brought a painful experience for someone else, right? You feel shame for that. Or maybe you think you're getting a good deal, and you're like, let's go, let's move forward, and then the deal goes through, and all of a sudden you have buyer's remorse, right? You, you feel disgrace, you feel that burden of embarrassment over the decision that you thought was good that ultimately ends in disgrace or shame. And so the servant's wisdom has a surprise in that it is completely contrary to our own. The servant's wisdom is one that plows forward headfirst into the experience of disgrace and shame. But he has a secret, and it's not a very well-kept secret because it's like right there in verse 7. The secret of the servant's wisdom is that the Lord God helps him. The secret of the servant's wisdom is that the Lord God helps him. See, the servant can afford to plow forward into disgrace, into shame. He can afford not to avoid these experiences because the Lord God is his help. Now, this word help in Hebrew is the word etzer. So if you want to say that you know, on your own time, you can. Etzer. And it is used in very specific ways, right? Primarily, all the way back in Genesis 2, this is the word that God uses to describe Eve. And the two major characters is God and Eve who are described this way. And it has very important significance because here God is the one who can do what the servant doesn't do. God is the one who can rescue him from the place that he's in. God is the one who is responsible for his well-being and is going to make sure that he's all good. See, God is the servant's delivering ally. He is his faithful friend. He is his rescue and his salvation through the experiences of disgrace and shame. And I think that this is a revolutionary idea. I think this is a, a mind-blowing concept because it is a freedom to embrace the experience of disgrace and shame. See, because the Lord God helps 
the servant. Because the Lord God helps the servant, he can give his back to those who strike, but he's not trampled. Because the Lord God helps the servant, he can give his cheeks to someone who wants to rip out his beard. I can't imagine much worse, but he's not disgraced. Because the Lord God helps him, he can set his face firmly in the face of spits and scorn, and he can be unflinchingly resolved in the face of God's steadfast love. Because the servant has a helper, because the servant can be delivered through these experiences, it really illustrates the powerlessness of these things that we greatly dread and fear. Because the servant is not going to be decimated by this experience, he can go through an experience of humiliation and be like, look, this is fine. I'm good, right? He can laugh at himself. Because the servant can go through an experience of disgrace, and it's not the heaviness. He doesn't have to carry that so much anymore. He can move forward in an air of lightness. This carries him forward through these experiences, and this is the wisdom that he offers to us. And so if we can put this in a summary, I think it's simple. I think the wisdom of the servant is to wait. The wisdom of the servant is to wait. Because God is the one who justifies. God is the one who vindicates. Look at verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The wisdom of the servant is to wait. And the wisdom of, we we see a, a picture of this in the wisdom of Job. Now, uh, if you guys have been, you know, in Christianity for a while, you've been around the Bible for a while, you probably have heard the story of Job. You're, even if you haven't been around for a while, you probably know a thing or two about it, right? So just to give a, a brief, brief recap, right, if you'll humor me for just a second. So Job, rich dude, right? Good job, had a ton of stuff, right? He had a good family. Job has it made, right? And Job also has an enemy, He has a cosmic enemy. It's a guy uh, by the name of Satan. Maybe you've heard of him before, right? And Satan's name literally means to accuse or the one who slanders. And we get a picture of this task that he lives out, he lives up to his name through the story of Job because his whole role, the whole uh, topic of what this character does through the book of Job is he's constantly leveling accusations and judgments against Job's character. And so the whole book starts in this way, right? Satan comes up to God and he's like, look, I know you think this Job guy is awesome. I know you think this Job guy is wonderful and fantastic, but I'm telling you, the only reason that he is faithful in any degree is because he's got money, man. He loves the money. He doesn't love you. And look, man, I know you think this Job guy is awesome, but like his life is so easy. His life is so cush. Right? He doesn't have to worry about anything, but I promise you, the minute the road gets a little rough, he's going to turn his back and he'll curse you to your face. 
Man, I know you think this Job guy is special, he's something else, but I'm telling you, the only reason he has anything to do with you is because you have blessed him immensely. And so Job loses everything. His wife leaves him, he loses his kids, right? He loses his job, his money, everything is gone. And he has some friends come to his house, and his friends, unwittingly, they think they're trying to help, but through the course of the narrative, they take on the role of Satan in Job's life. They begin to accuse him in the same ways that we see Satan accuse him to God. Like, Job, bro, we love you, man. We're here for you. But, like, what did you do? <laughs> what did you do to deserve this? Job, we love you, but how in the world is this happening to you? What are you hiding? What are you lying about? Why, what are you not telling us? What are you concealing? What sin is in your life that God is punishing you for that your life has come to this state? What did you do? to deserve this. And so Job has nothing. He's got no friends, no family, nothing. He is utterly alone in the accusations that people have leveled against him. He has nowhere to run. He has nowhere to hide. He is living in the midst of divorce and debt and decreation. His whole life has fallen apart. And what does he do? He waits. He doesn't do anything. He waits. He waits on God to vindicate him. He waits on God to raise him up and say, none of that is true about him. And this is the wisdom of the servant. This is exactly how the servant responds. See, the servant does not move to justify himself in the face of his accusers. He does not retaliate with violence for those who would strike him on the back or rip the hair out of his beard. He does not defend himself against these accusations that are leveled against him. What does he say? He says, who will contend with me? Let's stand up together. Who is my adversary? Come near. Who is the one who will declare me guilty? See, their accusations will wear out in the face and the light of God's truth. So come near. The servant invites deeper pain. He welcomes a second helping of hurt. And why? Why does he draw those near who are striking him, who are hurting him, who are accusing him of all of these evils and injustices, it's so that they might see the light. That they might see the God who vindicates. See, through their attacks and through their smearing, through their hurting, all of the daggers they throw into his reputation, all the holes they poke into him are windows for God's truth to shine through. It's through the very acts a violence against God's servant, that God is transforming them with the truth of his vindication. And so the servant welcomes them near. Come near and see that you have been complicit in the schemes of, our com cosmic, of your cosmic enemy. 
and realize the depth of your injustice so that you might realize the power of God's mercy to overcome it. See, it's for this reason that Jesus draws near to Nicodemus under the cover of night and counsels together with him through the scriptures so that he might see the light of God's truth. It's for this reason that Jesus sets his face like a flint toward the cross. It's for this reason that Jesus turns the other cheek of those who strike him. It's for this reason that Jesus walks the extra mile with those who are suffering injustice and pain. It's for this reason that Jesus makes no answer to the accusations of Pilate and the priests when they are leveling all kinds of evils against him. It's for this reason that he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. As he's hanging on the cross and being derided as a fake. It's for this reason that Jesus welcomes Thomas to see and feel the holes in his hands and the marks in his feet so that he might know fully and finally that the Lord is the God who helps. The Lord is the God who helps. So we have two verses left. <laughs> we have two verses left, and really what these next two verses are is a commentary as a reflection on what has come before. And it's illustrating how in these preceding verses we have really two lights and two paths in response to the servant's soliloquy. So if you look in verse 10, there the narrator is commenting on the soliloquy of the servant. He says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? But him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord. And rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. There's a commentary that is laying out the two paths in response. Right? On the one hand, we have who will obey the voice of God's servant, who will take on this element of wisdom, who will embrace to live is to die, to die is to gain. Who of you has no light? Who of you who has no hope? Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know what you're doing with your life. Maybe you're here and you have no earthly idea what the step forward for you is. Maybe you're here and you have no hope. You have no way forward. You have no way around and you feel utterly and desperately alone. The servant is the light. And he has come to bring us into the light of God's mercy. And so would you trust and know that the Lord God is the one who helps and those who wait on him, will never be put to shame. Take 120 seconds to ask yourself two questions. Right, we do this every week in Oxano. Right, first question is, man, like, what, is God, what is God saying to me in this text? What is God unveiling about my life through his word? 
And the second piece of it is simply what do I need to do about it? What do I need to do about it? Let me pray and take some time to reflect. Father God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your generosity and your kindness, Lord, to be our help. God, to overcome all the ways that we try to light our own fires, God, by all the ways that we we try to live in our own paths. Father, I pray, God, through these things and despite these things, God, that you would direct us to yourself and that we would be transformed in the light of your love. So, Lord, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.